Greetings, everyone. Everyone is now required and mandated to listen to this episode on planet Earth. That's required listening of this very episode. And any off-planet civilizations that are listening, you got to listen to it too. Okay? Sorry. That's the rules. It's the rules of the game. I am uh, super excited to speak with my friend, Will Duncan. My dear, sweet, kind, compassionate, caring, wonderful friend, Will Duncan. And I am recording the intro in the back of a car right now, in a little mobile recording setup I have, as to not wake up my little one in the house. Which is fitting because we are recording our episode in a vintage pop-up camper up at Skull Valley Lavender, Will's Lavender Farm. And that uh, that's a little plug for that right there. I'm so happy to have Will on this show. He is a seasoned veteran of the broadcast medium. He's appeared on many podcasts, radio shows, I think some TV shows. He has taught all over the world and is extremely skilled in making accessible religious and spiritual teachings in a very easy to understand and digestible manner, especially for our modern lack of strong attention to things, our kind of hummingbird bouncing around all over the place. No offense, hummingbirds, but I see you in my yard. You're just darting all over the place, right? Our hummingbird brains. I feel bad now because they're such beautiful birds. Although I've seen them really like attack each other a lot. Anyway, back to Will. He is a great ally to have in this journey on the planet, in this game of life running through the various levels and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It's a real game of 50-50. And you try to find a bonus round, but you just can't. Where are the bonus rounds? Are the bonus rounds in Vegas? Hawaii? Is it on the moon? I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll never know. That's actually become a really popular phrase And something I'm kind of trying to live by these days, as a side note, I guess we'll never know. It's the kind of phrase that just kind of takes the edge off, leaves you in a bit of a open and vulnerable state, in a good way, in the best way possible. Hmm. Well, anyway, I digress. Will Duncan, also an amazing musician, We have uh, played in many, many bands together, from bluegrass to kirtan to rock and roll. And, um, geez, one episode is not enough to cover what Will has to offer and, and the stories. Will has led quite a storied existence. And, um, so we're really just going to scratch the surface here. I will have links to everything Will in the show notes so that you can keep up to find out where he's teaching and what he's up to and checking out Skull Valley Lavender. So without further ado, let's launch into it. 
three, two, one. Blast off. here live together me and will duncan and um i'm really happy to be here this is my first on location episode where are we right now will we are um in a pop-up trailer that actually used to be on your property yes yes yeah, exactly. So this is an old Apache uh, trailer vintage. from vintage from the seventies. Yeah, that was in our yard for um, probably over ten years. Our friend uh, for lived in Tucson and moved to Michigan, left it there, and many people have lived in this over the years in our yard, and um, we finally were ready to to give it a new home, a new life, and so our mutual friend Joram took care of this uh getting collapsing it because it was kind of uncollapsible it's a pop-up but it wasn't really it hadn't been popped down in a long time no it has not had a pop down in a while so he was able to pop it down and uh, get it up here this is about four hours away it's northern arizona and um and now it has a beautiful new life here it's got a stable life. It's never going to get moved again. I, I think I've, I've been thinking about, you know, because anytime you bring something into your home or into your property, you also have to think like, oh, eventually I have to throw this away. Yeah. Eventually I have to get rid of it. Yes. Like, you know, like if you get a horse, like when that horse dies, what are you going to do with the, the dead horse? Right. That's uh, something to consider. It's big. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Big. So yeah. then you need a backhoe. And if you have a backhoe, you need a trailer. You need a truck that can pull the trail. So it goes on and on. So I've been, the moment this thing came onto the property and I realized it's never going to roll again. Yeah. The question is how to dismantle it. And I realized, I mean, it's just going to be some kind of like chainsaw. Oh, boy. Gosh. <laughs> I'm just going to have to cut it into pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful, though. I, I mean, know. This, well, we don't have to do that today. Not today. No. Right oh. now, we can enjoy it being this mobile home <laughs> podcasting studio. And I'll just do it to like a mobile studio. I mean, it's gorgeous. Like, it used to be this kind of old crappy plastic that's been now completely wooded over and uh, amazing the, uh, detail. Yeah, the phenomenal artist Douglas Smith, he um, he went to town on it and he took apart one of our chicken coops Yeah, and he redid it all with beautiful old wood. Yeah. And then I put in the floor and painted it and it's, it has a wonderful feel. I love it down here. It's really nice. It has a nice like uh, uh, awning over it that's been yeah. built so yeah. it's shaded in summer it's got a little like cooler in here oh I just wish you could all see it right now pretty great <laughs> so yeah so we're on the lavender farm yeah we're about a month before the lavender harvest mm-hmm so everything looks kind of dead, but it's starting to come back to life. And you say this, uh, it usually always looks dead, but then it just all of a sudden just... I mean, I really thought up. one field was completely dead. I yeah. just I, I just couldn't see any life in that yeah. field. Yeah. And then it's like, there's no way this field is coming back. I've lost like a third of my harvest this year, but it's now coming back to life. Yeah. The... Um, 
The first sign, I didn't realize, but vultures are migratory. And we have these turkey vultures that live in the Emory Oaks here. They're migratory. Yeah. Mm. And I don't know where they go. I keep trying to find out where they go in the winter, maybe like Argentina or something. But um, yeah. But they just about, about three weeks ago, I was outside and I just saw them swooping around and circling around the farm. And it's amazing because they travel huge distances and they come back to the exact same tree year after year. Wow. Just amazing. So they came back and that's always for us really the first sign of spring. Okay. It's pretty, pretty beautiful. And I love them. They come in every night. They come in around 5.30 for the night, and then they're late sleepers. They're kind of like the teenagers of the bird bird world. (laughs) And uh, they don't really get going until like 9.30, 10 a.m. Kind of makes sense. Then yeah. They just like circle around and hang out. Yeah, I'm totally. Like, they just go pick off that thing. Down yeah, there. totally. They're kind of very non. They're just. Uh, they're not motivated. Yeah. They don't even want to kill. It. They just want to like <laughs> just live off of other people's work. Yeah. Wait work. till someone else drops it, something. Yeah. And you're like I'll get that later. <laughs> <laughs> Turkey vultures. TV. They just want to watch TV. Yeah. Just chill out, <laughs> sleep late, and then just like eat the Cheetos on the floor, basically. <laughs> Oh, and then go down and have spring break somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) Miami. They go to Miami. I think they do, yeah. Um, Yeah, this is a a beautiful property. It's really nice to be here. And um, so I want to just jump back here way back, kind of like orient everyone towards how we met. How we knew each other and where where was that? What, what do you remember? I actually don't remember, but tell me if this is true. I have a vague memory, but yeah. it, but it could be faulty. Of you dressed up as a, some kind of piece of produce playing a song in a, in a co-op <laughs> about produce. Did that ever happen? Oh, I better cut that part out right now. <laughs> well... I was, I, I think what I, I remember meeting you in Tucson was in Aquavita. When I was okay. working at Aquavita. Okay, so you weren't dressed up as produce. I wasn't dressed as produce, but I might have even had an aura of somebody who would dress up as produce. Let me, well, let me ask you a different question. Have, and you, you have to answer honestly, because you are hooked <laughs> up to a lie detector. Have you ever dressed up as produce? moving right along so we met at aqua i did i did i did once i I think at the food conspiracy co-op i met i was uh i don't remember i was actually asking amanda this the other day did i ever wear the carrot costume there for anything and she said i think you did that's my memory of like i I don't i didn't like hey i'm will and you know you're (laughs) mr carrot yeah I, i i feel like that was my first memory of seeing you yeah I yeah. was like, oh, who is this guy? Well, I was also Lemon Man, so I was probably dressed right, as, you right, know, as a lemon. As doing that. But <laughs> so so I do remember actually meeting you at Aquavita. Yeah. And you know who else worked there is the owner of this pop-up trailer. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and I think I met her at the same time, actually. Yes, Sarah Root. Yeah. She was there. Yes. And uh, and I soon after meeting both of you, Yeah. just to bring it back to the whole purpose for this podcast which is to talk about this pop-up trailer <laughs> I, I met her soon after and we became good friends and yeah. i saw this pop-up trailer and i asked her if i could buy it oh. and she said no and she eventually sold it to you guys yes so pretty much my whole covert con- uh, uh mission in life has been to get this from you guys and you finally did it I finally it worked did. out mission accomplished what was the word i was looking for covert covert operation. it was a covert operation so anyway um but that yeah so i probably met you at aquavita but i yeah. do remember i only got to see uh, you had one of my favorite bands in tucson which was a 
Galactic Federation of Love. And I saw you guys twice. I saw you guys at Plush one night. Yeah. Which was great. And you came out of a, it's a, what's the word for it? It's not a tomb, but a... Sarcophagus? Oh, the old sarcophagus. You came out of a sarcophagus. And, um, and I saw you guys rock there, and I was blown away. It was so good. And then I saw you guys play at the old uh, Bikus Flom Chen stage once. Yes. And that yes. was a, a phenomenal show. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, those were, and I was like, that's what a rock and roll show is. It was fun. Those Full were good old days. high energy. Yeah. It's yeah. just, yeah, super good time. We had we had that. We had some high energy back then. All right, so that's where we met. But, Drug free. But where did we become friends? We became friends. Um, hmm. I remember the first time we started talking about Dharma was um, mm -hmm. we were on our way to the Rolling Stones uh, previously owned Hot Spring Resort. That is... That's where it happened. I think yeah. that's where we got to be friends. It was a big Thanksgiving caravan. We were we were, go, we were in my old minivan yeah. with like eight of us packed in going to Eden Hot Springs. And um, for folks that aren't familiar with this place, it's a very strange land. It's uh, in kind of... Um, what is it? It's eastern Arizona, but it's this southern, 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 yeah, southeast. Which, yeah, and so it's this, it's this land that is these hot, these hot springs. And one of the pieces of history with the hot springs is that it was owned for a bit by the Rolling Stones. And so there's a guitar-shaped pool that um, we can only imagine they had created. There's, for there's a couple of guitar shapes, aren't there? Just there's, one. Just one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But a really, really strange. Strange place. And, it, and it was it was owned for a little while by the adult film industry. And yes. So there was a bunch of films made there. Yes. Um, and there's a Mormons before that, I think. There's a Mormon hotel. It's a natural natural progression kind yeah. of from the Mormons to adult <laughs> film to the Rolling well, Stones. It actually went from like circus. There was a circus. Yeah, because there's there. pictures of like elephants yeah. in the front yard. Yeah, it's stuff. so weird. It's so I mean, it's just out. And it's still nowhere. not open to the public. And no. it is, I think, I, and, and I'm a huge fan of hot springs. I've been to hot springs all over the world. Yeah. And I think it's the best that I've ever been to. I would agree. The yeah. the springs are varied, and the temperatures are all over the place, <laughs> and uh, it's a it's amazing. There's a mud pit. There's a huge hot pool that's Olympic size. I believe. Yes, it's, it is it's, uh, huge. Yeah, you could almost sail in it. Yeah, it's like a little sunfish. You could sail around. It's amazing. It's huge. Um, no, the place is incredible, and it's now burned down. But it had a huge three story, four story house. It was a three story, like old kind of. Um, mansion mansion that was there that with we, like and when i was there it was like broken windows and like graffiti yeah. all over it yeah it was spooky very spooky definitely and and scary. really really fun and then um we were actually the some of the last people we did not we didn't start we did not fire. start the fire let's be clear um it but was yeah it was it yeah. burned down soon after that yeah soon after and, and it's it, gone forever yeah so crazy but that that's when i think we became uh friends yeah basically yeah. that we could say it's safe to say and uh i think for like three days we did not take a break from talking about buddhism i think so it yeah was it was just like straight up straight on yeah. right in there and uh that was kind of when i first started becoming more interested in the buddhist path i i would say i mean it was maybe before I think that was before my first Vipassana retreat. Well, yeah, the conversations, if I remember, was you berating me with one question after another. 
<laughs> and me pretending that sounds like, right. Me pretending like I knew the answers. Which but that's is, not, that sounds right. Yeah, I think totally. So. I mean, it's always been that. I think it's that way. You've well, and be and just to now give some context. Why was I berating you with so many questions? You had taken a long. You've been on this uh, path for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I would say you know from where you grew up. You know, this is like. So, so tell a little bit about that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a very nice town called Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, that when I grew up there was still had a little bit of a underbelly, mm. but now it's pretty polished. But um, you know, the mafia had a pretty strong presence when I grew up yeah. there. Um, and uh, I can still remember when I was a boy. I mean, it sounds like I'm a lot older than I am, but. We didn't go to grocery stores. We went to the meat store, and then we went to a produce store, and then we went to the cheese store. Mm-hmm. And I can remember going on all these errands with my mother, and I can still remember in the meat store, which was right down the street from us, full cattle hanging in a wow. um, glass-windowed refrigerator. Wow. So it was cool because you could look in uh, yeah. from the parking lot and see all these cattle hanging by huge hooks. <sighs> Whoa. And then you would just go say to the guys who were all named Mario and things like that, and you'd say, hey, uh, you know, I want this cut. And they would go and literally butcher it there for you, wrap it up in paper. Wow. And um, <clears throat> they also sold garlic bread and soda. Okay. So when I was a kid, that's where all of our um, money that we made mm. um, doing paper roots and stuff, we would go buy an entire loaf of garlic bread and a Coke, and we would just eat the whole loaf and then drink the Coke. <laughs> oh, man. That's <laughs> pretty much raised on garlic bread and Coke. And it, and that's really is... It's funny, because I had another friend from Connecticut on the show, and uh, he would tell me about how really, like, the best pizza is in Connecticut. Oh, really? Yeah. And, like, Italian food. That's yeah, it. Yeah. It's yeah, like... Yeah. yeah, so in Greenwich when I when I grew up in Greenwich, now it's now it's pretty fancy and but it was really heavy Italian influence. Yeah. Um and yeah. it was very beautiful. We grew up right along the water and so we had a lot of marsh land. Yeah. We had a um a lot of land around us cuz mm-hmm. it wasn't crowded back then. Yeah. And now it's been a bit more crowded. So we had a beautiful pond, I had a canoe. And uh, I used to even go in my canoe before school, before I went to the school bus. So my, um, and I probably had five forts out in the woods. So my life growing up was very much outdoors. And this was pre, um, obviously pre-internet, but it was even pre like Atari and video games. So my life was really uh, pretty much like 100% outside. So you had like, I remember you've taught me about that, how you would just, or maybe even something else I've heard you in some of your talks um that you would just be outside even in cold like winter you just go and like sleep out there well that was my so i have a i finally um diagnosed myself i have a strange disorder which is i have audio claustrophobia yeah um if i can't hear depth uh i start to get super uh, uncomfortable depth like how like right now we're in the trailer we can hear uh, we're in but it's we can hear the sound of the wind mm-hmm. all around us, uh, the sound of flags flapping. There's a, you can hear layers of space. Yeah. 
like, you know, how when claustrophobia normally, you, like, you can't see any distance. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're tight in or you can't feel any distance. So, so I've noticed when, I, when I'm in, like, a condominium or something that's super soundproof yeah. and you can't hear anything, yeah. um, I start to get claustrophobic. I start to get super anxious. Yeah. So I noticed this as a I – st- I noticed that I was often outside. And then I really – this kind of really came to hit me in high school. So it was just my final year in high school. I asked my parents if I could move into the backyard. Hmm. And at that point, we had moved to a much, much smaller house in a very tight suburban neighborhood. Yeah. So, I mean, I had neighbors, you know, 40 feet from me on all sides. But my parents kindly allowed me to put a tent in the backyard. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I lived there my entire senior year of high school. I remember, um, you know, there's, you know, and I loved winter camping. So I was already familiar with, like, camping in the cold. And I had a really nice sleeping bag. Yeah. But I remember one time sitting at the dinner table, and it's like, you know, like three feet of snow outside. And my stepfather was just like, Will, why don't you move back inside? (laughs) 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 You know, I don't know what the neighbors thought, because he was this, like, you know, 17-year-old kid, like, waking up every morning. Yeah. but um, and, not, w- and also back east, it's like not exactly something. Maybe out west, it's a little more yeah, like, yeah, okay, but, but yeah. it's not something you're going to do. It did make sneaking out of the house like so easy that it wasn't fun anymore. Because <laughs> yeah. I just had to unzip my tent and go walk me to friend out in the driveway. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was wonderful. I really loved, and, and it wasn't the only time that I've spent a year sleeping outside, but I really loved it. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really a special year to have done that. Why, uh, what was the other year that you did? So then from high school, I graduated about, I graduated and I left about a week or two after I graduated and I was just, and, and that's a whole another story, but I, I went and hitchhiked around. So I was mostly sleeping outside that whole time cause I was just hitchhiking around and camping out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I was sleeping outside a lot then. And then I spent a year, like jump ahead four years later, I spent a year at a Buddhist um, retreat center called uh, Land of Medicine Buddha in California. And I was working for a really wonderful um, Tibetan Lama named Lama Zopa. And, uh, and, I, and they, when I first got the job, I went to interview for the job, I got hired as the head chef. Um, chef would have to be a lowercase c there. <laughs> uh, but I had no idea what I was doing really, but I love to cook. And um, they said the only problem, we'd love to offer you the job, but the only problem is we don't have any housing. Okay. And I uh-huh. took a walk on the property and I noticed this like plastic dome out and way out in the woods. Like a buckyball, one of those? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like a Buckminster Fuller um, dome. Yeah. It had poles and yeah, and yeah. It, it was it was like made for like a greenhouse or something like that, you know. Yeah. And I looked at that and I'm like, that is amazing. It was about a 20 minute walk into Nicene Marks, which is a national, uh, you know, right on the edge of Nicene Marks, which is a big national um, park in Santa Cruz, mm. and it was all surrounded by gorgeous old growth trees. And I thought, this is where I belong, you know. So I said, I'll take the job and I'll live there. And they're yeah. like, Are you sure? And I was like, Yeah, I guess so. But <laughs> it was like. I could, and still to this day, it was probably my um, <laughs> my favorite home that I've ever lived in. Wow! So I lived right next to a, a whole den of coyotes. Yeah, and I watched the pups get born, and I watched <sighs> them come out of the you know, and it, it was just amazing place. 
And um, yeah, it was really an extraordinary year. No electricity. You know, I had a little uh, gas lantern. Um, yeah, it was really, really extraordinary. What was the best about that? Just being able to live outside? I think the... I think one thing is that I started every day with a 20-minute walk mm-hmm. into into the retreat center. And yeah. I ended every day with a 20-minute walk out into the woods. Yeah. I got... Um, I was working with some fear at that time. So I um I really wanted to explore this concept of fear and 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 it was the first time I started to get into this idea of leaning into emotional difficulties as opposed to trying to push them away. Mm. So like if you're walking in the woods and there was there was definitely mountain lions in those woods. So if you're walking in the woods and you get fearful, t- what tends to happen is you try to not be scared. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I tried one night. I was particularly really uh, scared. So I decided to turn off my flashlight and just really like lean into the fear. And and uh, it was pitch black. And it's again, it's old growth forest. So it's just like, and I remember that night it was pitch back, black. And it probably took me about an hour to walk home because I just <laughs> had to feel the trail with my foot. Mm-hmm. And I really just leaned into, like, felt the fear in my body. And I was like, where is fear in my body? And how does it, like, with a kind of curiosity. And I had a really profound experience that happened to me about halfway through the walk. I was, like, I was hitting this point of almost full-blown panic, fear. But I was still doing this practice of leaning into it and trying to feel it in all its complexity. Like, does fear have... um, a smell? Does it have like a, a, a color quality? And, you know, do, where does it live in the body? How does it move through the body? I was like exploring all these questions while on the, on the verge of full-on panic attack. And all of a sudden, it was just something broke. And it was, com- it was completely gone. I was I felt absolutely fearless. There's not a, not an ounce of fear left in my body and I my whole system relaxed and I felt like so at ease. And I was like, wow, that was just really strange. Yeah. And it was and it just gave me this like faith in that type of practice of leaning into experience. Yeah. Um but yeah, so that was a beautiful thing, but I I think the best thing about living out there was just being in in the national in the natural world and also just these old growth trees have so much presence to them yeah we were talking last night actually about places unusual places we've slept and when i was a kid i got a chance to sleep in um saint john's cathedral in new york city yes and i remember waking up in the middle of night and just walking through the cathedral and just the magicalness that's what it felt like in this forest yeah it's and you know and you hear you hear this with old growth forest but i felt like i was in a cathedral And I, so I was like, I live alone in a cathedral and people like feel bad for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, poor Will's still out in the, Yeah, he you has know, to walk 20 minutes. Yeah, he's still <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, it was really, really magical experience. And I love the organization I work with and I love the work. And yeah. they eventually, you know, I eventually moved from the um, kitchen to the groundskeeper. And I love that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, it was a great experience. I, I love being out there. So why aren't we all living outside? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's hard. I, it's not, I, yeah. I get it. It's not like... I know. I keep thinking I want to do it again. I want to live outside again. But I think as I get older, I just need more comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's like, you know, sleeping on hard surfaces. We get used yeah. to yeah. marshmallow yeah. pillows and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. fluff and foam. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that was... 
That was when I was 23. I lived there. Right. For one year, really, from like um, from like January to January. Yeah, yeah. It was a really great year. The other thing about that is it, I found it's the, it was the perfect balance between solitude and community. Mm. And it's kind of part of what we're doing here at the Lavender Farm. But I've really always loved this mixture. I'm really a solitary person. Yeah. And I'm both like an introvert and an extrovert. Like I really need a lot of time alone. Yes. And I love hanging out with people. Yeah. But if I have too much of either one, I just get really imbalanced very quickly. Yeah. And and I found, like, so here I was living in a community, yeah. eating all my meals communally. It was a bunch of monks and nuns living there and, and other people devoted to the Dharma. And, um, and I loved the community and I loved, you know, meetings and, you know, just living together. Mm-hmm. And then I just loved going home alone at the end of the day. Yeah. So we've tried, we, we bought this place a few years ago with the intention of just having a place for a couple of us more who want to devote ourselves more to a contemplative life. Um, so we sit twice a day and we limit Wi-Fi and all this stuff. A lot of this has kind of gone out the window because when we're recording this right now, we're in the middle of COVID. And so a lot of this, our lifestyle has kind of faltered. Yeah. But now we're kind of coming back out of it. And so we're kind of rebuilding that. And yeah. we are, the no video policy, which we've lived with out here, has kind of gone out the window. I've, I'm so funny because since you've been here, you know, I've known you for so long. And since you've gotten the place, like it's been about five years. And yeah. um um, I always try and push it. I, you know, like, Will, does a GIF count as a video? Um, what if not just a trailer? What about just we did one trailer for this movie? <laughs> I know. But no, you're very, it's, it is, it's strict in a way that feels so nice to come. And um, I mean, you're saying you've let it all out the window, but it's like, well, we've been unplugged a lot with like, we're not watching stuff, you know, we're not yeah. doing this. It's just nice to be on the land and, um, have the, you know, making food together and then sitting and, yeah. you know, having this time to just be out in nature and walk around and do work. And, yeah. you know, that, that's such a treat, um, to drop away the, the, the kind of rush through it world that we're in, you yeah. know, and just take some time. Yeah. And so often when you're with friends, they're like, oh, you got to see this thing. And then, you know, and it just, it's like, ah, oh, I just, I don't want to see anything. I you always know? tell friends when they say, I say, I don't got to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't got to watch that. Oh, you have to see this. You're like, no, I don't. And I won't. I'm not going to see that. Uh, but, uh, and I love movies and I love videos, yeah. but it is it is really beautiful to like just not have that in your life. Yeah. And so I'll go into town and we'll watch movies and things like that. But while yeah. at the farm, it's like, oh, we, that's just totally, It's a, a, typically, and we're moving back into that now, but it's a video-free zone, mm-hmm. except for, and we had to have one caveat, it's a, uh, except for videos on how to do something you're presently working on. <laughs> right. Like, and we had to do the presently working on because one guy here was starting to obsessively watch videos about how to like do these crazy random stuff that we were never gonna do. I think I know who you're talking about. I know but, um, watching making out lean tos and yeah, videos like, on how to build your own you know house and cabin out of just found pallets. And, uh, so um, so it's yeah. like oh, but you know if I'm having a plumbing problem, yeah. I'll pull up all the videos and try to figure that out. Which is incredible. I mean, you've told me this. You've been able to build so much and even get into a little bit with, like, 
the retreat you did, you know, you built a house, you know, from YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> like YouTube comes out and you're able to build something. I, you know, I, I don't know how people like did farming and, and construction without YouTube. Like I'm, I'm, you know, and I didn't grow up that way. So I yeah. don't have this, these natural skills, Yeah, but I live far enough away where no plumbers will come out here. <laughs> and, you know, so for example, the washing machine broke. Yeah. My washing machine cost me about $400. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and and then like four months later it broke. So I called the the plumber or the mechanic, and they yeah. said, "Yeah, we'll come out, but we're gonna it's gonna we're gonna charge you three hundred dollars just to drive out there, and then it's a hundred and twenty five an hour for the repair." More than the machine. So just for him to show up would be four twenty five, and I paid yeah. four hundred for the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> so I look it up on YouTube. Yeah. It took me nine hours to take the entire washing machine apart. Oh my gosh! And then I found the problem, and I put it all back together. <laughs> You know, but it's like, you know, like what without YouTube. So anyway, that's been. We are not sponsored by YouTube. No, we're not. We should clarify that. Yeah, that's that's no spot. Well, th- this is also a theme that's been going through the podcast I've been doing is pre-internet days. You know, yeah. And how did we survive pre-internet? What did we? What did that look like? Yeah. So it's hard to imagine now setting the precedence for YouTube and what where we're at. You know, looking this up, but. What happened before that? Well, here's a question for you. Do you think we have... um, So I'm thinking about Pong, which was the very first video game we had. Yeah. It was a large console. It was about like the size of two toasters Mm -hmm. next to each other, you know? And it had two two knobs on it. Yes. That was it. Yeah. Each knob was connected to a little stripe that was a paddle. (laughs) And a ball went back and forth, and you just goes, cloop, cloop. Yeah. Cloop. You know, and that was it. Yeah. That was so, I mean, that kept our attention. Right. I mean, my brother and I would play that for hours after school. You yeah. know, when we when we got Pong, mm-hmm. that was like huge. Yeah. So what do you, now the, a, a kid couldn't handle that. I mean, that would be so boring to him. So what do you yeah. think has happened to our minds that we can't? I mean, I wonder what would happen if you had that washing machine manual with no youtube and you were just able to read through it maybe your attention could have been was more focused back then totally and more like you had a stronger sense of like i can follow this and follow the instructions or follow the logic to how a washing yeah. machine would work or yeah yeah i mean some people have mechanical minds but maybe but i mean there's a, there's gifts to it i'm not saying i'm not yeah, discounting no. that it's incredible it's been able to yeah no it's absolutely quite, it's quite magic so, um, I do know this editing cuts get faster and faster in movies and stuff. Yes. And that's partially, we're, we're, we're not um, Luddites. We're not like anti-technology out here. Yeah. But we're like, oh, can we live? And, and I make a living partially off a computer. And, right. And I love computers. I love editing. I love yeah. doing stuff. But the question that we've been struggling with is, oh, how can we live in a way that's a little bit more balanced, a little bit more sane? Yeah. And we have found, so people, people, friends of ours come out here who are going through difficult times. Mm-hmm. So we've had people come out dealing with sexual trauma, dealing with divorce, dealing with grief, loss of a loved one. And I've seen, and dealing with depression and anxiety, and I've seen over and over and over again that this combination of very limited use of computers, mm-hmm. um, sitting in prayer meditation twice a day, very gentle, just, you know, nothing, nothing epic, and then uh, getting your hands dirty is incredibly healing 
yeah and eating meals together it's like wow this is really like nourishing for the soul yeah and i've seen it i've been amazed over and over i remember yeah. i had a friend that came out and he was laying on the couch and he was so depressed he couldn't get up and he's, he's like i gotta go home and says i'm not gonna be of any use out here you know mm -hmm. and then 10 days later he was a completely different person yeah know? And, uh, and then I talked to him a year after that, and he said he was still keeping up with his meditation practice, and he was still doing his yoga, and like it just yeah. like it was like a, a jolt, you know, like yes. a like a shock therapy for the soul, you know. Yeah. And uh, so so once we realized the value and benefit of that, we've really been just trying to nurture that kind of quality, and so we call it a, a modern monastic community, but it's it's um nobody's ordained or anything out here and we're not we don't uh, force any dogma or, you know but it's yeah. just like oh here's a different way of living yeah now so talking like about that and then tying back into what we were saying earlier where you have this experience where it's great to be you know the introvert extrovert thing so you want to be around people and then you also need your space and i'm really fascinated by this because I, i'm a very social person but i've learned to really appreciate this alone time going on retreat you know i'm nowhere near as you know seasoned as you in in retreat time but um i've just grown to love that silence and being in solitary time right so and, and at the same time i'm like it almost becomes not not necessarily a bit of a like a uh a pull back and forth because the other side oh well i love socialization i love to be around people our it seems like you know our ancestors were just always together you know always in a group and so what about that you know why is it that we i mean obviously it's like uh both and not either or but what do you think about that you know there's this thing of like you know solitary time i want to be alone and that's so nourishing and then people are nourishing yeah, and then you get people that are that are need to be alone out of a reflexive response mm. to anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and I should say vice versa. You get you get the people that are around other people out of a reflexive response to anxiety. Yeah. What do I mean by reflexive response? I mean there's a kind of anxiety, and you're. I, I love uh, the um, trauma specialist Resma Menikin says something beautiful. He says uh, all adults need to learn how to mitigate their own anxiety and not rely on others to do it for them. Well, so but if we, I'm going to stop there for a okay. moment because if we are needing each other to find like co-regulation, you know, in our so our nervous systems that want to find safety, and we need to do that in relation to another person. So how do you, I mean, how do you do that if it's... Well, I think there's a way of doing it where, which is balanced. And then there's a way of doing it, which, you know, we can kind of like jokingly call psychic vampirism. Yeah. Where you just, where you just like without the other person's permission or knowledge, you just kind of like use them because you're anxious. Yes. And we all know those kind of people that, that are talking incessantly, mm -hmm. not checking in to see if their words are falling on fertile soil. Yeah. You know, just like, <laughs> and, and, and you know, or people that are like... Uh, what would be agoraphobic or just not leaving the house because there's so much anxiety, you know? So these would be like the reflexive responses. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what would, what would be a way of living where you're not in this kind of reflexive response, but you're actually doing it in a way that's nourishing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always like, um, 
a question that comes up, you know, it's like I, I, I noticed from a very young age that I've had a, uh, a very natural desire to be alone more. Uh, I have like a more of a disposition towards solitude. Yeah. And I always have. And I can remember when I was a little boy, I built this little fort next to the house. And I still have this uh, very clear memory of sitting in there one time. It had a little tarp over it. And I was sitting in there in a rainstorm. And I was hearing the rain hit on the tarp. And I was looking out into some of the trees right in front of me. And I had this feeling of like, oh, this is someday I'll do this for real. Mm. It's just this real feeling of like, uh, yeah, like, oh, this is like when you, you know, you find like a vocation or you find mm -hmm. like, oh, this is who, who I am. You know, those first tastes of it from childhood. Yeah. yeah. I still remember like that was the first time from childhood where I tuned into something that felt like, oh, this has a deep resonance. Yeah. With who I am, you know? Yeah. And, and then my life has moved in that direction. So I do think I'm a little more prone towards solitude yeah. Um, and then the question that I also have to ask myself is, is, oh, is this a reflexive response or is this coming from a place of, of soul nourishing? Mm. Um, but for me, it is, uh, and, and I do also just love people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I waited tables for years and it was my absolute favorite job. And I remember I would, so I waited tables for 10 years. Yeah. It's a long time. Right. And you love that job. <laughs> and I, and, and effort, out of 10 years, I would say there was less than 10 days that I didn't look forward to going to work. That's amazing. I and mean, you never would think that. I know. Come on. And I woke up, and here's the feeling I felt. Every morning I wake up, and I say, I can't believe I get to meet people today. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was just exciting for me. Yeah. And then when I was done waiting tables, I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody. You yeah. know, I just want like some solitude and, you know, I want to write and I want to, yeah. You know. So, yeah, it's this funny mixture. So it's a balance, right? Yeah. I mean, for everybody, but I think people have different dispositions. Yeah. Some people are, don't have that disposition to want to be alone. And I think what you're mentioning in terms of like tribal culture and stuff, I think, I think if you look at tribal cultures, there was always a couple people in the tribal culture, which lived kind of on the outskirts of the tribe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whatever you want to call them, they had different names in different cultures, but these were, you know, priests or, you know, and they always lived kind of on the outskirts. Yeah. On the edges of the tribe. And then there was all those people that were more in, you know, in the tribe. And I think I have just more of a disposition to live on the outskirts. Yes. Yes. And to, and to serve the community in, from that place. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I've done some retreats, and the retreat is always not to leave the world, quote-unquote, but to find a certain, um, like a certain thread or a certain depth which then can be brought back and serve the greater community. That is well said. Will said. <laughs> <laughs> you you say this, and uh, we're jumping ahead because I wanted to... Wanted to touch on something else but since we're we're in the zone here you have done a lot of retreat time and one of these retreats is uh you did is a three-year three-month three-day retreat si silent solitary so did you find that you that happened do you find that it was you were able to pull that from that place you know to bring back i, I hope so yeah i think so um yeah. and that was really when i got out of that retreat I started teaching full time. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I had a I had an embarrassing experience when I was a young man. I had an uh, what I would call now just a very mild spiritual experience. But in that moment of ignorance, I thought I had had a full-blown enlightenment awakening. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? <laughs> it's just like this small experience and <laughs> yeah. uh, and I came out of it and I thought um I felt like I had I felt like I had light pouring out of my body. Yeah. And I thought there was so much light pouring out of my body that I could probably heal people. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, case okay, so this gets a little bit more embarrassing, but so I um I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the well, time. It's not like other people are listening right now, so we can find a little I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and I, uh, I think I was probably, um, oh, I, I was, I had my 20th birthday there, so I was probably 19. Okay. And um, I thought, okay, well, I should go touch as many people as I can. Yeah. So that I could, like, heal. <laughs> yeah. I didn't tell anybody this was happening to me, but I really, like, I was like, wow, this is, I had a, ma- I had a full-blown change so i went to the boulder mall which is just an outdoor like shopping area and i just spent all day bumping into people (laughs) 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 Uh, so and then um and it lasted for probably it lasted for about 30 hours okay and uh full energy and full you know and then and then i uh i it went away Mm -hmm. and i was um no wiser and no better for the experience. I was just the same loser (laughs) that I was before that experience. But I was now so embarrassed that I had misread the experience. Hmm. It was, it was like, it it wasn't an embarrassment. It was like this deep level of shame. Interesting. Like, oh, wow, I'm not awakened or I'm not enlightened, you know? And it was just, I don't know. Shame or humbling? No, it wasn't humbling at all. It was it was deep shame. Like I screwed up. I didn't do it. I didn't get there yet. It wasn't even that. It was that I was so deluded. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It wasn't yeah. like, oh, I haven't made it, but I'll get there someday. It was yeah. and it wasn't humble. It was just embarrassed shame, you know? I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, a, a it's it'd be like kind of going to a party and having imagine having all of your friends tell you you're super good looking and you're not that good looking. And then you go to the party and you'd like I don't know. And you'd like try to like hit on somebody and you know, yeah. it, it felt like that. It's yes. like, dude, you're a loser. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you're not good looking at all. Or it felt like something like that. Like suddenly realizing like you're not who you thought you were. Or your mom says, you're just the best. You're the best. <laughs> the whole thing of this. Then you go out and you're like, wow. Oh, yeah. other so is it, it's like, better. <laughs> it was a deep reckoning. And yeah. so the reason I bring that up is because there's always the danger of that, right? Like, I had, you know, like retreat was a good experience and I came out and I was able to help people. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes I feel that. Yeah. But when I got out of retreat, I felt the reason I bring this up is because when I got out of my three year retreat, yeah, I felt like I had a layer of clarity that I was saturated in. Yeah. And my goal was to just go out and share that as much as possible. Yeah. For the record, that clarity is all gone. I don't think so. It feels, no, it, feels no. like, it feels like it went away pretty quickly. I don't buy it. But um, Liar. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> but uh, but so I did. That's humble. That's not shame, right there. Yeah, and I don't That's mean so this humbling. as a um, as a kind of humbling statement. Uh, and I, you, we should get my partner in here. To <laughs> yeah, well, our partners can always give the more. <laughs> Um, but I did, and I think I think I've talked to so three year retreat. What what you mentioned three years, three days, three months is a traditional practice. It's hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's probably I don't know two hundred people in America alone that are doing that practice. It's kind of a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. So it's yeah. not a highly unusual practice. People do it, and I'm yeah. par- I was part of a long, long tradition. It's an extremely beautiful practice. I felt extremely grateful and and fortunate to have done it. It was also extremely difficult. It was one of the most pain- emotionally painful experiences of my life, um, that kind of level of loneliness was extremely profound. Um but but so I got out and I and I just taught as much as I could. Yeah. Um, I traveled. My partner and I traveled all around the uh, country, um, and 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 I traveled overseas. And it was just a lot of teaching and sharing and just kind of going through that. And then I could really really feel all of that like um, that layer of clarity. I could very much feel it fading over that year. And, and I think it's just habituating back. So people often say, oh, retreat, uh, like you get, you, you get away from reality. But really what happens in retreat is you start to actually touch on reality. Yeah. And what it feels like to come out of three years of silence, of not speaking or seeing other people, and then come back into the world. I always liken it to um, come, imagine being stuck in Disneyland without an exit. Dude. <laughs> And it's just everything has this kind of facade and make believeness, yeah. And it's just like, wow, there's just no depth, and there's it's just all like a facade. Yeah, that's how it felt like, and it was it was uh, it was heartbreaking. And then what happened? I feel like is my mind kind of started to numb enough where I could just be comfortable in Disneyland. So that difference, and I think we all probably feel this, but that difference between being clear and in Disneyland is painful. And then so my, my mind just kind of clouded up again where I could be comfortable back in Disneyland. So this is interesting because um, I've had like a little experience in that feeling. And when you say, yeah, when people say, well, you're just escaping, you're just getting away, it does not feel like that. It feels like you're actually just being more present with what is and how often do we get a chance to do that? You know, because we have all these layers of things that we're just, or we get to bombard ourselves with. It's yeah. so easy to do that. Yeah. So I'm, this, this kind of brings up this question then of how is it possible to maintain that level of clarity or what would that even look like being clear in this Disneyland, Disney world? It's a great question. I mean, I have no idea. I'll let you know if I ever figured it out. But I do feel like I have a model. Like I had a teacher who I felt had a a clarity. Mm -hmm. And that's what started me on the whole path. Who was that? This was this guy named Murray Rogers. And um, I met him when I was around 13. Mm -hmm. It's a long story to that, but he showed up in our living room in these homespun robes, and he had lived in Gandhi's ashram for a while and started an ashram in North India, a Christian ashram in North India, and um, he showed up in my suburban home in Connecticut. And, uh, and he had this, his clarity was astounding. And I didn't have the language to talk about it then or to know what was happening to me. But what happened is I saw a level of clarity that I had never seen in an adult before. Mm. And it gave me a new, um, 
what would be the word? It gave me like a new reference point mm. in which to orient myself. New normal. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is possible. Yeah. And then I and then what happened is I fell in love with him as like in a teacher student relationship and I just wanted to be like that. So I started yeah. orienting my life towards anything that would uh, assist me in creating that kind of clarity. What was the clarity? What does it feel like? I mean, what's that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think we've all, well, here's sometimes with a question like that, sometimes I like to reverse engineer it. All right. So what does it feel like to be around somebody who, let's say, who is a meth addict? Yeah, it feels kind of like muddled and, and, and yeah, and it feels for me it feels frantic, frenetic. Yeah, draining, draining. Yeah, um, and and just yeah, like yeah, exhausting. It's of. exhausting. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of them yeah. and the trauma therapy yeah. I do, so it's tough. Yeah, yeah, it's exhausting, and it, <laughs> yeah. and it creates a kind of muddling in in my own mind, and yeah. So it's it's the opposite of that, right? Yeah, it's just like oh, it's it's um, energizing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you leave the encounter feeling uplifted. You leave yeah. the encounter feeling like new hope. Yeah. You feel the encounter feeling like um, a spaciousness, an inner spaciousness. Mm. And so all of those things. So I kept having that experience just by being in his presence. Just by being in his presence, not even necessarily getting like the teachings. No, no, him. nothing. It had nothing to do with teachings. Um, just being around the person. Yeah. And he had a beautiful way of teaching. And, and thank God, because you know, now that I'm, uh, now that I'm an, a middle-aged man, and I realize, like, oh, it's hard to connect with teens, mm-hmm. especially like 13-year-old boys. Like, yeah. like what? I don't know what to say to them. You know, I, don't, yeah. I, can't, I just don't know how to make that connection, you know? Yeah. And he had a beautiful way. Um, he was married, and uh, they had a small community, and his wife was very much similar. She had this beautiful way of connecting but their way of connecting was to and i realized now that as 13 i didn't even know what question i didn't even know like i didn't have any questions for him because i didn't have any questions like i didn't know what like to ask yeah and he had this way of helping me formulate super nourishing questions yeah and and some of these questions have lived with me my whole life you know Mm. And it's like, oh, these questions that actually allow you to go a little deeper. So we would go, we would sit in my bedroom. I lived in the basement at the time, and um, I was already interested in... This was pre-tent. Yeah, this was (laughs) pre-tent. This was about, yeah, this was three years before the tent, four years before the tent. And I was already interested in in spiritual, Eastern occult spiritual stuff, right? So I had all these books, and... And he would come down, and he we would talk about scripture, mm. and uh, we would talk about the Bhagavad Gita. We would talk about uh, Lao Tzu and uh, Tao Te Ching, and and, he, and we would read the way he taught was we would read a passage, and then he would help me formulate a bunch of questions around that passage. Mm. Say, what do you think? Like, what do you think he's trying to say here? What what would that mean? Uh, you know. The Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. Or he said, "What? What do you think Arjuna is is feeling at this moment?" Or you know, and and I'd yeah. be like, and he just helped me. He he would rephrase the question in a number of ways so I could access the question, and then and then he would leave me alone with that question. So it was really it's, it was really beautiful, yeah. and it gave me this huge love. And and my I I think I think you could say that my whole life has been dedicated to the study of Scripture. Yeah. 
it's kind of what I do. I mean, it's hard yes. to like say that at a cocktail party, like, oh, I study scripture. But I, right. uh, and, and that's what he left me is this like, oh, there's this immense body of wisdom that's available to us. And so that's what I do. I study scripture and, and I let it um, kind of percolate into my system. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's really the gift he gave me. And, and it was just, and, 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 and what I felt, I think, as I grew up was like, oh, that's an access point into the clarity that I'm longing for. And again, yeah. this is all language that I'm talking now. It's not the language I had as a kid. Right. As a kid, I was just like, can I hang out with you more? Yeah. Let's, uh, <laughs> can I wash the dishes? Dude, and, come on. Let's, and, uh, <laughs> and eventually, he left, he left India, and then he went to Jerusalem for a while, and then he went from Jerusalem to Hong Kong, and then he went from Hong Kong to Canada. Huh. By the time he was in Canada, I was in towards the end of high school, and uh, I started to go up and vi- and spend time with him in Canada because it was just a short plane ride from New York City to Toronto. Yeah, and then it was about a four-hour bus ride from Toronto to his little town, um, and I would go up there and just live with him. And I think you know, I was just probably such a drag to them. Like, oh God, here comes this teenager again, you know? <laughs> but they lived an extremely austere life that was always super challenging for me. What was? Yeah, you've told me a little bit about this. Just what? what paint the pictures. Well, my job usually when I was there's there, no pong there. No, there's no pong. There's no TV. Um, and meditation was at like four thirty in the morning, <sighs> and they'd wake me up, you know, and I'd go and we'd sit in the temple, and I had some really wonderful, profound meditations with him in the temple. It was a gorgeous temple. And the life was basically um, work and prayer. Yeah. And and a little bit of study. We'd have study time every day. Yeah. Um, after after uh, nap time, we also had a nap time, about a 30-minute nap time, which I would usually just read. And then after nap time, we would have uh, – they were all English by birth, um, mm-hmm. Scottish and uh, – and uh, from Oxford, and uh, one of the women was from Scotland. We always had proper tea time, and nice. then him and I would meet and talk about Scripture. Wow. So I'd come in with questions, and at that point I could formulate my own questions. And um, yeah. But there was no hot showers. I got one bucket of water a day to use. Keep in mind, this is a normal Western home, right? Yeah. I could have jumped in the shower and taken a hot shower. Yes. But they ha- were committed to not using more resources than they needed. Wow. And uh, wow. and they only kept enough money in the house that they needed for that month, and then any extra money they would give to the poor. And it sounds cliche, but it was it was quite like authentic. And yeah. they and I was like, well, what are you going to do next month? And they're like, they would just trust that that our lives are of use and that money will come forward wouldn't you also like go and glean yeah so Um, then my in the fall when i'd be up in there in the fall my job when i was up there not in the fall my job was usually cleaning okay uh cleaning the house cleaning dishes anything like that i also so this is absurd but they uh were very environmentally oriented Mm -hmm. and they didn't again it was mostly a, a, a vow of poverty but they didn't like to use more resources than they needed yeah so one of my jobs was all the mail that came in we steamed the envelopes and then to unseal them and then turned them around so they would be new envelopes you know what i <laughs> Think mean about that Think about that so we <laughs> folks <laughs> so we would steam what? the envelopes to unglue them so we didn't have to tear them and then they were like and then wow. we would re-glue them we would fold them inside out re-glue yeah. them and then we ha- would have a pile of fresh envelopes wow 
and he spent a huge part of his life um, replying to letters. Yeah. People with questions and stuff. So then my job was also to help him mail those envelopes and and to turn the envelopes around. (laughs) And that was a full-time job. That's amazing. But but in the fall, my job was to glean the field. So he got permission from farmers. And so gleaning, if you're not familiar, it's when you go and after the crop has been harvested, there's always stuff laying on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I would spend, you know, I would spend three hours and I'd get enough like uh, soybeans, for example, for maybe one meal for a couple of us wow so my job was to glean the fields and literally yeah. just go pick soybeans out of the dirt and uh, <laughs> it's incredible and it was so refreshing because the world i came from greenwich was um it was a world of uh at that point and so my life changed radically halfway through my high school years but uh, but in my early days i was lived in a wealthy neighborhood and right down from chef boyardee yeah so chef boyardee was on my paper route and so was donald trump and um and yeah so and so i lived in this kind of uber wealthy neighborhood and then my life radically changed when i was around uh 16 yeah and, uh, and and I loved having both of those experiences, going from um, a super fancy life to also a super simple life. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was all of it was excess. Yeah. And it was all the. I mean, by the time I got older, Greenwich had changed to become a super wealthy neighborhood because it was close to New York City, so a lot of wealth started to move in there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it just changed to be kind of a, a thing about uh, kind of fronting wealth. Mm-hmm. And, then to, and then to go from there to spending, you know, five hours turning envelopes inside out. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was so sobering. Right. And again, it was like, oh, I had these two kind of qualities. One was I saw a lot of people like anxious and depressed and I had neighbors who were millionaires killing themselves and, you know, yeah. and then... And then Murray, Mary, and Heather, these three people that were living unbelievable uh, simplicity. Yeah. Taking cold bucket baths their entire life, you know, and just saturated in humor and joy. Yeah. And Murray was one of the funniest people I knew. So we would, I mean, at least once a day, we would be um, buckled over laughing with tears, you know. And he was an amazing storyteller. And every now and then I'd have one or two stories that he just loved me to tell over and over again. And he would just start like heaving laughing. (laughs) (laughs) So it was also an environment where humor was super yeah important you know and everybody loved and it's just yeah it was just wonderful experience and so i'm so grateful to to him for really giving me this and i don't know what would have happened if i hadn't had him as a model yeah because i i mean i've seen that through your teaching and through your um our friendship is this you know this uh vibrancy that comes in and it's it's at the forefront really of just like humor and, and needing to have this it's so energizing, you know, mm, without yeah. that. And I know we've t- talked about this, like without that energy, I think on the spiritual path, it just becomes very flat and can be very kind of like, um, I don't know, left brain, like, very, you know, yeah. it's like how useful, you know, yeah, is that yeah. it just becomes almost like, you know, so. Yeah. No, another thing Murray really taught me is when I, so eventually when I graduated high school, I left home for a while and I hitchhiked around the country. And at one point I, I asked if I could come live with him at the ashram. Mm-hmm. And he wrote me this beautiful letter I still have. And he says, yeah, you're welcome to come live here. Um, but now you'll see our faults in a new way. Uh-huh. 
and I've seen this as, as in my own teaching too. It there's a certain feeling of being a teacher, where you get close enough with a student where you're like, oh, now they're gonna see that I'm actually just a schmuck, you know. <laughs> and so I feel like a lot of being a meditation teacher or a spiritual teacher is just, I mean, basically my full time job is I let people down. Mm. And it's it's exhausting, but it's like refreshing when you finally let them down. Yeah, and then you can like start fresh, you know. Yeah. But he really helped me because he, I did see the flaws in there, and I did see his flaws, and I even saw the flaws in his thinking, and you know, mm. and I started to see that. And then as I matured, and I saw that I did all this spiritual practice, and I still had all of these foundational personality flaws, mm. I suddenly felt like, oh, that's, o- like, that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not like a failure of my life. It's just that like spiritual practice is one thing, and it doesn't necessarily touch on everything, and I can still be a flawed human being, and I can still have flawed views about the world. And mm-hmm. um, so it just – and it left me some space to just still be – it helped a lot, especially helped after a three-year retreat when I felt like, again, I had that slight delusion maybe that I was in – I was saturated in this clarity. And then when that clarity started to leave me – it helped me be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm still as, as flawed as I was before retreat, but I've just maybe tasted something that's of value, you know. So we have these like, I think a lot of people have grandiose schemes, even if they're not fully um, immersed or enmeshed into a, a spiritual group or a teachings. Is that you're going to be this perfect human being, you know, this enlightened person, this mm-hmm. enlightened being. Um, if you got to this level, right? Yeah, of totally. Of the game. Yeah. And so wh- what do you think about this? And is that even possible? And what would you, and so there's a few questions here. What would yeah. you define as uh-huh. um, enlightenment or awakening? Yeah, it's a great question. The simple answer is I have absolutely no idea. And you and I have talked about this a bit, but I seem to have this special superpower where I align myself with teachers that eventually fall into some type of corruption. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a couple things that can happen, right? You can just dismiss everything you've ever learned from them. Mm -hmm. um, And just be like, oh, it's all, you know, like, for example, like I have one teacher that was, um, really really wonderful meditation teacher and then it turns out he's been you know sleeping with prostitutes and Mm -hmm. nobody knew about it and you know yeah and that can you know it's all the same story right yeah so then the question is oh was this person ever legitimate yeah is it all have i everything i've studied with has all been a scam you know yeah so there's that one there's a nut and i've seen this with people that were close to him too you know or or with multiple teachers that i've been involved with yeah i I keep coming up with that you know Mm mm-hmm then the other question is, um, I'm just not going to, I think it's all lie and he's great. And, you know, there's that tendency just to like, yeah, just to whitewash it all. And, oh, it's all lies. And are, yep. they, are they were doing that to teach us a lesson? And yeah. you kind of over-spiritualize it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but there's another way of just like living into the complexity of that. Yeah. Of, oh, wow. Yeah. They, they taught me some wonderful things and there's some serious problems here. Mm-hmm. And that is a more difficult place to be because we like clarity. Mm-hmm. And, and the phrase that's often used in Buddhism is that's a groundless state. Yeah. 
is is when you have a, and and I really felt this in retreat, and this was a really a, an extremely profound, a difficult lesson that I went through in retreat. Is I found that labeling creates a reduction of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So let me unpack that for a minute because it's a little confusing. But um, I found this one night, and, and you've heard this story, but when I found a gigantic whip scorpion on my ceiling. Now, whip scorpions, are, it, you might want to pause the podcast and look them up for a second. I, <laughs> Google them. <laughs> whip scorpions are terrifying looking. I mean, if you, I did, I'd never seen one in my life, and I was like, what is that? So I'm, I'm taking this thing out into the night sky, um, and I, I caught it in a huge jar, and I'm taking it out. And this thing is terrifying. And I'm like, I can't believe this thing was in my bedroom. And like, what, you know, I'm just like, I have this very, very strong feeling of enemy, mm-hmm. of, of uh, intruder or like, you know, a bad thing, right? Um, of the bad villain. And, that, and I'm taking him out in the night sky. And I, I, I had this very small experience, but it's just continually, the reason I keep telling the story is because it's still percolating in me. But I was looking up at the night sky and I all of a sudden had a, a vision of reality. And what is that reality? The reality is, and I don't mean this in a capital R, I just mean basic what was happening, is we were on a, on a planet floating through space extreme speeds on the you know edge of of some random galaxy you know it's like in backwoods galaxy like just in this backwoods solar system on the edge of the solar system we're on this little planet we're cruising around at hundreds of miles an hour and we're two earthlings (laughs) and neither of us have any idea what we're really doing there and we're just trying to avoid suffering we're Mm -hmm. trying to avoid danger and we're trying to get you know food and sex and and all of a sudden i just like the clarity of that hit me and what happened next was i got overwhelmed with love for this fellow earthling Mm -hmm. as i would for a brother I was like, I love this thing. You know, we're just we're both we're both we're both earthlings. Yeah. It'd be like yeah. discovering that you you were actually had a sibling you didn't know about and this feeling like this natural feeling of love. And that's exactly what it was. And, and I felt like this, oh wow. It's just suddenly I realized, oh, we're earthlings. Like my my vision macroed out. I like scanned out and I realized the reality of, oh, we're both earthlings. We're both we're so close to each other. Relate we're so related. And then my mind shift back, and I'm like, no, this thing is disgusting. I should kill it. <laughs> but that switching back and forth, what it, what it allowed me to do was it, it just allowed me to um, see that the labeling process itself created a reduction of anxiety. So, so when I had this feeling of enemy, that this thing was an enemy, it was just, I was relaxed because there's a clarity of, it's, it's a little hard for me to explain, which is why I still talk about it because I haven't quite figured it out yet, but there was um, a clarity of, oh, a bad guy. And that clarity, I realized, was a reduction of anxiety. And then when my mind was in this other phase, which is a loved one, a fellow earthling that also could cause me harm, it was this unsettling groundless state of both feeling love and the heart open, but also feeling to, cause they're terrifying looking and they look like they can really hurt you. So it's like <laughs> holding this groundless state of like n- not knowing and keeping the heart open. So in so oftentimes in the labeling process, particularly labeling enemy, it's a way of 
um, the heart closes and there's a clarity that's a reduction of anxiety. So it's a, it's a little bit of a weird concept, but it's, it really ho- has held up for all these years as a really guiding principle that oftentimes we hold on to labels to reduce anxiety. Yeah. So with these teachers that have shown less than upright moral behavior, it's it's it is that groundless state of like, oh, I actually care about this person. This person has taught me really useful, beautiful things, and this person is a narcissist or this person has gone astray or this person has also really hurt other people. And it's like, oh, how to hold that complexity. Yeah. I've been interested yeah. recently to discover that in some native languages, um, there's a tendency to, to have what we call non-reified language. And so reified comes from the Latin word re, which means thing. So when you think about reification, it's the thingification of something. Um, so, for example, nowadays we have, again, uh, uh, we, we're, this is being recorded in the middle of a COVID crisis, and so we have vaccines, right? And now we have, like, anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. Now, anti-vaxxer is a way of, of thingifying a person. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer, or you're a trumper, or you're a whatever, or, or uh, a sheep that just, you know, it's like yeah. every each side has a way of labeling the other side in a way of reducing their complexity and their humanity, mm-hmm. as opposed to you are a person that has some hesitation around vaccines. Mm-hmm. So the language there is you're a person. And among that personhood, you have some of these qualities versus when I say you're an anti-vaxxer, that's just that's putting you in a compartment. Mm-hmm. And that compartmentalization can be a way of oddly of reducing anxiety, but it actually limits your ability to uh, live with an open heart in the world. Yeah. So it may be a little bit unclear, but but that was an experience of like, oh, okay, here's how I can approach. Or, or here's one a, a maybe more accurate way for me of approaching some of these teachers that have gone astray is can I, can I live in a kind of state of groundlessness around it? Yeah, it's like wow. Yeah, this has been. This person has done some really wrong things, and this person has also taught me a lot. And you know, it's like it's a complexity. Yes. So living with the complexity rather than, um, and we've also spoken about this, the polarization of things. Yeah. Just keeping it this, us and them, divide and conquer. Keep it like. Yeah the split where it's it's not as simple as that well and here's the key thing in doing that what you're what you need to learn to do is to be able to endure more anxiety mm-hmm. yeah I mean, and that's what we're talking about is actually developing a muscle yeah to and i and by anxiety i'm not talking about anxiety disorders mm-hmm. i'm talking about just generalized anxiety of not knowing what's happening I sometimes joke with, uh, you know, you hear like in the new age community and people saying, you know, we're going, this is a great awakening and this wonderful, you know, moving into the space. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is it right now. <laughs> you've like, already gotten there. You're, you're, you're going through it. It's not the way you, it's not like, you know, rainbow shooting out of everyone right now. It's like to go through the anxiety, yeah. to go through the tough, like, you know, where you're not having to box things in and keep it like, you know, into this oversimplified um relationship to the world 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes, others. yeah, it's, it's sometimes I think about like people <laughs> think like, oh, I want a spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. but I was like, okay, what if I what if, what if I said, <laughs> do you want everything familiar ripped out from under you? Right. <laughs> it's like, yes. No, I'd rather not have that, you know. <laughs> and the spiritual awakening. I mean, a spiritual awakening, like the that's that's like, can you actually lean into the pain of trying to relate with somebody when amidst the complexity of a fight or a disagreement? Yeah, that's where the work happens. I mean, that's what or, we're talking about. Or a toddler screaming at you. Yeah, for right. Like a toddler. Yeah. We are in a situation <laughs> where we've had. Uh, well, I've had about three days of toddler screaming. Yes, you have. And um, yeah, it's like yes, that's where the spiritual work happens. It doesn't yeah. happen with new age music mm -hmm. and sitting in your quiet meditation zone and spacing out. Right. Yeah. It happens like oh, with the toddler screaming and yeah. It's the nitty gritty, <laughs> and and it's true. And and, and something you said about the thingifying and reification, I, I do think about the fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of like these older languages per like, you know, Sanskrit and they don't have nouns, right? It's just, it's a, it's a fluid language where things are in movement, yeah. right? It's. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's definitely most native languages, and especially a lot of. I mean, I haven't, uh, you know, I'm not a linguist, and I haven't studied this, but I've read uh, some really interesting articles. I've read an interesting um, uh, uh, transcript of a um, court hearing about a sexual abuser on a reservation, Native American reservation, hmm. and uh, one of the women that was testifying. Uh, said, I'm going to speak, uh, I'm going to testify in my native language because English language doesn't do, uh, it doesn't allow me to say what I need to say. And basically, the analysis of this um, transcript was that the English language tends to say, like, rapist, mm. where, it, where the native language tends to say uh, a man who is... Um, who is who is assaulting a woman it's like it just it allows for a kind of like that there's a human being there yeah again it's the non-reification yeah. this the same article that i'm referencing also said something interesting think about the difference between the two labels a slave yeah and an enslaved person mm-hmm Super subtle, but a yeah. slave is a reified way of languaging that yeah. versus an enslaved person. Mm. So a slave is like you're a thing, yeah. and an enslaved person is you're a person who has fallen into a situation where you're enslaved. Yeah. So it's a really subtle distinction, but it's uh, it's creating a little more um, capacity for groundless states to think about the way we reify language yeah. and to allow for some more complexity. And just kind of touching again on what would be the, um, what could be a potential outcome for really following this kind of path and yeah. practice? Yeah, right. And and again, coming back to what would enlightenment look like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, I my answer is the same. I have no idea. And so so in the in the Buddhist scripture, it says that there is a a possibility of a kind of final awakening where you uh, don't go back to kind of the Disneyland entrapment. You are in ultimate clarity, mm -hmm. ultimate clear vision. And, uh, and that is clear, that is clear in, the, in the Buddhist scriptures, that that is a possibility, mm -hmm. right? That that's what an enlightenment looks like that. But here's the problem, 
is I've studied with some I've studied with some problematic teachers, but I've also studied with some really wonderful teachers. And I've never seen and I've been I've had a wonderful opportunity to be really quite close to some really extraordinary teachers. And I've never seen anybody that doesn't have some mentally afflicted states. And again, you can what what students oftentimes do is they kind of try to because that can be cause anxiety because it disrupts your view of what's what's possible. So they can tend to spiritualize that mm-hmm. and say the oh they're just doing that to teach us a lesson. Yeah, yeah, maybe possible. I don't buy it. I yeah. was like, yeah, no, I think that person is just having a mental affliction. I think they're just yeah. pissed off right now and they're irritable probably because they didn't sleep well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it is, it's like, oh. Sometimes so, a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, right. So it's like, I, I just like, oh, can we actually just, um, yeah. So so I don't know. Like, And, and yeah. to me, it, I mean, does it matter if it's like a, an ultimate state that is you finally reach and it's a pinnacle? Or, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter so much because the more that I practice, the more that I engage in, um, there's a lot of beautiful what's called lojong practices that I do quite often and meditation practices. The more I engage in those, the more I'm able to access joy and um kind of direct contact with life experience so for me i consider the path of i consider my spiritual path a path of intelligent hedonism Hmm. yeah i mean ultimately i'm trying to get the most amount of pleasure with the least amount of effort yeah but as i've lived my life i've realized that that most amount of pleasure has to do with being in relationship and being of service to other human beings yeah. So it's not something out of charity. It's something yeah. like, oh, this actually, I, I get the most benefit out of this. And and hence coming around too to the the vibrancy and like energized quality of like you know I think how you teach and how I know that you practice um, is that's infused in there. You know where it isn't this just kind of uh, uh, what was the word I was thinking earlier like the. Um, mental gymnastics Mm. right without Mm. the like touching into this is a i'm applying this it's applied Mm -hmm. right yeah it's like you're actually using it and it's it's not um just for the sake of kind of having yeah there's a concept in in um, spiritual practice called spiritually bypassing and uh you can you could call it in other practices too um therapeutic bypassing or whatever but in spiritual bypassing it's anytime you use a spiritual concept to avoid growth mm-hmm. and uh and and if you think about it anytime we come into a um situation where we're trying to mature i propose we have two simultaneous things happening we have a desire to grow and a desire to stay the same so anybody entering a therapeutic setting, for example, you go into a therapist's office, you want to grow, you're there because you want to grow, but you will also do things to sabotage that growth because you want to stay the same. Um, and so I used to ask myself, like I would see I would see colleagues and I would see teachers, what I would call spiritually bypassing, like avoiding growth and using spiritual concepts to avoid growth. So I used to ask myself the question, am I spiritually bypassing? And the answer was pretty much always no. 
And then I decided one day, well, if I was deluded, how would I know if I was deluded? Because I would be deluded. And so I said, well, let me change the question. And let me say, as opposed to am I spiritually bypassing, let me just ask the question, how am I spiritually bypassing? Mm -hmm. And when I changed that simple language, I started to see all of these subtle ways I was spiritually bypassing. And and to me, that's a much more interesting way of going about it is, oh, just assuming that I'm not like at a state where I'm not deluded. What I'm trying to do now is get more refined with identifying my delusions. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way you, I propose that you can do that work is if you remove shame out of the whole equation. And again, this was coming back to that experience where I was in a really deluded state after I had that experience when I was 19. I was then in this deluded state that I was really whole, attaching onto. I mean, I can't remember. It was so long ago, but I'm sure I had all of these grandiose uh, notions of what my life would be like now. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and so there's probably like some really embarrassing, uh, deluded states. And so part of the shame was like, oh, my God, you know, like I'm such a, you know, like to think that you're a loser is just another side of the egoic coin is thinking you're awesome. Yeah. (laughs) They're both ego obsessions. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm such a loser, I'll never be nobody. That's just an obsession with the ego. Do you think it's something, though, that is a little more prevalent in Western culture? Yeah, I mean, probably. It's just, it's like, it's our Calvinistic safe way of being egomaniacs. Yes. I'm nothing. (laughs) Yeah, you're no doing this. But um, but yeah, so so the thing with with the... well, I'm the worst. Enlightenment, or I have no idea. But what I do know is I can refine my access. I can find. I can refine my pathways into joy. Mm-hmm. I can refine the access. How to say it? I can refine like the 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 pathways to joy can go through a refinement process, so they're more accessible. So if I'm like hanging out on the couch and I'm just going to be watching, you know, binge watching the Marvel, Marvel Snarvel movies and just getting into that and just, you know, chowing down on uh, Chips Ahoy, which I don't do anymore. But, you know, something like that did when I was little, like probably half a pack a day watching Thundercats. Um, (laughs) What would happen? You know, that's, so that's an access point that people are familiar with. Yeah, right. And it's fun. I mean, it's fun for a little bit, but it's also like um, coming, I I now at least have the contrasting side of like, well, I'm going to go away for, you know, four days or something and just turn off and everything's unplugged. And it's really difficult at first. It's hard to do. Yeah. And then it feels so much better than chow, chow hounding. Well, we see that a lot here. So people, I think, that we all have this notion of, I just want to get away. Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't want to get away. It's, I mean, yeah. I think we have this notion. I mean, I put myself in that category, too. It's like, yeah, I really want to get away. And then the minute I'm away, I'm like, oh, my God, I want to distract myself with something because I'm used to being busy and distracted. Yes. And yes. the busyness can be a nourish, like can be comforting. And mm-hmm. so we see that at the farm a lot. People are like, can I come to the farm and just relax? You know, yeah. they get here and they're 
flipping out. There's no Wi-Fi. There's <laughs> nothing to watch. And I tell you, I mean, it's amazing. We get people that are planning on being here for a week, and then the next day they, quote, unquote, remember something they have to do in town. Yeah. And then they're like, you know what? I, I turns out I have to get home. And you know, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we see that. And now we've learned how to, like, prep people for that mm -hmm. just like just to let you know that you're about to go through a detox yes and it's tricky but so here's what you brought up brings up a really really interesting equation that i've been trying to actually write out as a math equation i oh. don't have it yet but there's a there's a there's something that happens so i'm talking about intelligent hedonism mm -hmm. the the word for that is eudaimonic Okay, right? and eudaimonic is is a type of pleasure that's actually uplifting as opposed to depleting yeah so eudaimonic pleasure would be things like um, exercise, uh, eating right, um, yoga, meditating, all these things which take a little bit of effort at the outset, mm -hmm. things typically you don't want to do, but then once you do it, you're like, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. You know, nobody's ever like, God, I sh that was such a waste of time going to yoga class. I should have watched TV instead. You pretty much leave yoga yeah. like, I feel great. Right? Yeah. Or like the other day, I was feeling um, super stressed out. So I went for a walk in the woods. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's not like, it's not rocket science that I'm feeling better now. Yeah. Like halfway through a three hour walk, I'm like, I feel great. Yeah. I hear the sound of the creeks. I smell the forest. It's like, yeah, this is like, of course, mm -hmm. I'm feeling better. Right. Yeah. So, but here's the equation. Hedonism, the engagement in hedonism. What do I mean by hedonism? I mean uh, porn is classic, very easily accessible pleasure mm -hmm. that depletes you in the long run. Yeah. Alcohol, porn, excessive um, anything, uh, excessive videos, excessive computer, excessive television, uh, all of these things that are social media, social media, all these things that are yeah. really easy, um, but leave us depleted. Yeah. The equation is this. The increase of hedonism leads to a decrease of an ability to perceive possibility. Okay, so let me say that a different way. The more I engage in hedonism, I can't even conceive of any possibility outside of a small, like my framework for possibility closes in on itself. Mm -hmm. So what happens with hedonism is you there's not even a desire to break out of that because you're like, well, for what? Right. Because life is meaningless. In other words, you atrophy your capacity for hope. Yeah. Yeah. You atrophy your capacity to even conceive of something. So I, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky. But I think of it as like a moat around a castle. Mm -hmm. There's like this moat, and 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 if you think about the castle, is a kind of more eudaimonic or or uplifting kind of pleasure. Mm -hmm. There's a moat that blocks you from even accessing that. Yeah, that's increased with hedonistic behavior. Yeah. So what you're doing with hedonism is you're actually atrophying your capacity to see possibility, which means, and here's the key thing, you have to go through a period of unknown before you can access possibility again. Mm -hmm. And this is a leap of faith. Yeah. This is, I think it relates, and this is absurd, but I think it relates to the synaptic cleft. Synaptic cleft is a small space that nerve impulses go over. And it's, a, it's just literally space. 
Uh-huh. It's the unknown. I mean, yeah. it's literally making it so it's a leap of faith. And we have all these l- words in our language, right? Yeah. It's literally like this falling into this unknown, right? Yeah. And again, this relates to this muscle that we're constantly developing in our spiritual life of the muscle of learning to be with slightly anxious states. Um, the muscle of learning to endure uh, the anxiety of groundless states. Yeah. Because anytime we're switching from, anytime we're deciding to change from a hedonistic behavior to one that's more eudaimonic or intelligently hedonistic, it involves a kind of uh, a state of the unknown, mm-hmm. which can be terrifying. And, it, and that's the hero's journey. Yeah, that's the courage that's needed to actually and 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 I have seen people and from my perspective, I have no idea what's really going on for them, but I feel like I've seen people engage in three year retreats that have just engaged in avoidance mm-hmm. the entire three years, and it's possible. I mean, you can you can avoid yourself even if you're locked in the room with yourself. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is you know, and so three year retreat yeah. doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, you somebody could be go through much more profound spiritual awakening just living their day, raising a child, mm-hmm. and somebody in a three-year retreat can just avoid growth. And you know, so it's it's not unfortunately the external um, what somebody has externally accomplished, quote unquote, is no litmus test for what they've actually accomplished. Do you think that you need? Um, do you need Morpheus to help you with this? Yes. Or can you do it on your own, right? Oh, you do want you want to unplug from the yeah, yeah, do you want to can you unplug from the matrix on your own? Do you need someone to help show you the way? And like a coach, a, a teacher, do you want do, is there a way to do it because it, it takes a lot of effort, you know, you're like you're you're on a well-worn groove, right? And so how do you jump the needle to the next track? Oh, yeah. And I love St. Teresa's answer to that. So St. Teresa was a 15th century um Christian mystic, and she's an intellectual powerhouse. She is. Uh, if you read her, you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of uh, deference to men because she's writing in the time of the Inquisition. So she's always like, "What would I know? I'm just a woman. You know better because you're a man." And there's a lot of that. So most people don't get into the depth of her writing because it can be exhausting, and it's antiquated writing, and there's a lot of like self-deferential talk. And but if you can sit through that, and you get to, she's extremely, extremely profound. Um, but she's says to that question uh it's none of my business <laughs> she's like yeah she's like our, our, a better way of saying it is like you know like it's not my job my job is to just use what resources are popping up mm-hmm. to the best of my ability so yeah. the question you're saying is do you need a teacher or can you do this on your own mm-hmm. and we've seen different people that that question is answered differently some yeah. people can do it on their own yeah and some people really need a teacher yeah. And it's just we all have different like we're all coming in with different dispositions into this life. It's it also just seems really tricky for somebody who's been uh, say just going in that same patterns to start to habituate to something new. Yeah, and I think I mean, well here's the thing. I think you definitely need something to jolt you out of it. Mm-hmm. But whether it's a teacher mm-hmm. or a car accident or a diagnosis. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. who knows? And, and that's more St. Teresa's thing. It's like, that's up to the Lord. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Because life is going to kick your ass. Yeah. 
And you can either meet that ass kicking or you can try to run away from it. You can either be in the groundless state or you can try to continue to reify. What's... Yeah. And here's what we see is an archetype that comes through all of myth is we see the Jonah story. So Jonah, it, it, like, like he has this moment where he could meet that groundless state. But he, you know, the Lord tells him something and he avoids it. He tries to run away from it. Yeah. So what happens is Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. If we look at the, we have the same myth in in Indian tradition with Matsyendra. Mm. Matsyendra gets swallowed by a whale for seven years and that's where he learns yoga. Mm. Uh, Jonah gets swallowed by a whale and that's where he kind of has his come to Jesus moment or he like gets, you know, awakened to the depth of his life. And the, the swallowed by the whale is, is depression. I mean, that's one type of, it's, it's going into the dark night of the soul. It's going into like, wow, this is terrifying, you know? And again, I see a lot of those dark nights nowadays in diagnoses. You get a scary diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I see it in, you know, all these things. Like, we're all just brothers and sisters and dealing with that. We all have to deal with this at one time or another, you know? Mm -hmm. And realize, yeah, life is, like, life is terrifying, you know? It's not going to go well for any of us. And that sounds depressing, but if we can actually settle into that reality, then, then, then we're entering that liminal, that synaptic cleft of the unknown. Mm. And, and out of that burning down of the house of what we, where we thought we were, some new possibility then can arise. Mm-hmm. And this archetype we see over and over again, and I've seen it in my own life, of there's this terror of the unknown and we avoid that at all costs. And then something will push us into the unknown, whether it's a teacher or whether it's something external. And then we, we sit in that unknown. If we can stay conscious in that unknown, then there's a possibility of awakening into a new possibility. Hmm. But we can, and it does happen, we can keep ourselves right at the edge of that unknown through addictive patterning. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to stay stoned. I'm just going to whatever. Yeah. I'm going to stay busy so I don't ever have to look at this. Yeah. And then what happens, because I do hospice work too, and, and so I I'm, I'm occasionally have the um, amazing honor being with people as they're approaching death. And what mm-hmm. you see is like suddenly you can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. You can't be too busy. You can't, you know. And, and, and then they're finally, they finally realize, oh, I wish I had entered this unknown long ago. Yeah. Let me yeah. add one thing onto yeah. that. So Murray, the last time I we went to see him, I knew I would never see him again. And at that point, he was being taken care of by some nuns in Oxford. So he made this huge pilgrimage back to his, where he grew up. It was really like a beautiful life story. So I went to visit him, and I said to him, I said, Murray, if you could do anything over, like your whole life, what would you have done? And he said, simply, I would have let go a lot sooner. <laughs> and that was the quality of it is I would have I would have let go into the unknown a lot sooner. Hmm. And he said I was scared, you know. I was obviously we're scared to go into the unknown, but what 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 that deep unknown brings about is a deeper and deeper possibilities hmm. of of being awake and alert. Yeah. Yeah. Um what would be like Okay, so I mean, we have this uh this tool, a way of, of being in that, which I think is uh, as meditation, right? So I, I'm wondering what you think, what would you say is a good tool for that? Meeting reality as it is and being in the unknown, 
just being like able to meet the unknown? Well, I think the first thing is we have to deal with um, moving beyond our shame. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother discussion, but I think the shame keeps us blocked from actually admitting. And, and, and I think that's if I think a retreat done even fairly well, uh, mildly well, um, a long three-year retreat. I think one thing it does is it, and I and I read this in Thoreau years ago before I did retreat, and then when I got into retreat, I was like, oh yeah. And Thoreau says solitude brings you face to face with the old musty cheese that you are. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and I really, I think, uh, and I've talked with other people who have done three-year retreats and different traditions, and, and it's like, yeah. Yeah. You really come face-to-face. -face. So can you approach the old musty cheese you are without a feeling of, like, shame? Like, without self-deprecating yourself. Exactly. And just saying, like, here it is. I'm going to own this. I'm going to take it in, and here it is right now without adding shame. That's tricky. I can see how hard that is. Yeah, because yes. we're such a, again, this uh, I think there's something in our culture that is has more predilection towards these attachment disorders, you know, yeah. and especially shame and guilt. Yeah, right. And so, how is it that we can work uh, work through that? Which I think there are other tools that can help support that, so that you can totally, maybe yeah. work in, you know. Yeah, that's a whole nother discussion because, yeah. like, how can you go through that? But I think it's I think it has to do with this um, deep self forgiveness of being a flawed human being. Uh huh. And and that's a beautiful way of getting through the shame because yeah. it's like because then oh there's nothing to be ashamedful for you know yeah. so I do a lot of one on one work and people often uh, come to me with um, things they've been deeply deeply ashamed about that they've never told anybody mm -hmm. and and I mean I've had people literally shaking their whole body shaking when they're about to tell me mm. and then I hear it and I'm like. Uh, is is that it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, it's, but we it's, the things are so big for us, you know, yeah. and uh, and and you just see how much energy's been held there to keep that from the public eye, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just so much weight, and it's just—I mm -hmm. mean, it, you know—I I say that jokingly, but what I really feel is like I just want to weep because I realize how much they've been carrying their whole life. Yeah, that they don't need to be carrying. Yeah. You know, and it and it's just so much. I could just tell you all these stories of things that people have like just unburdened, and it's like, oh my God, you didn't have to carry that all this time, you know? Yeah. Um. So shame is a huge one. Can we get? Can we realize that we're flawed? And can we realize that our flaws are not as personal as that we think they are? Mm -hmm. We're coming out of these large family systems and these energies moving from generation to generation and these cultural yeah. imprints and. You know, like let's take porn for example. I mean, porn is incredibly um, designed to addict human beings. Yeah, it's not personal. You know, <laughs> this is not like. And, and I say that because that's a, a one that I find most people have a lot of shame around sexuality, and mm -hmm. it's like, oh wow, if you realize how impersonal this was, mm -hmm. it's like that's like saying a rat's like should be ashamed for being addicted to cocaine. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. oh my god, what a loser that rat is. You know, <laughs> but so so can Crappy we rat can we depersonalize and realize? Oh, Oh, this is you know this is not about you who is it that christian evangelical who rick warren i think who wrote like oh. some super super bestseller book yeah but the i think the first line is uh of the whole book is it's not about you 
Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's great. That's, that's good. That's the end of the book. <laughs> so I think so in the discussion of, okay, how can, we, how, how can we progress along the path? I think one is coming to terms with the level of our shame. Yeah. And then the other, and, and this may change for me if you ask me this in, in a year or two, but what I've realized is we've also, as is often many of us, have atrophy, atrophied our capacity for joy. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, so I started, when I started noticing this in myself, I started to consciously experiment. And here's what I did, and, and I want to recommend it to anybody. Yeah. I, I started to um, consciously and set a timer. Yeah. And this is so important. I've recommended this to so many people, and one out of 100 people actually do it. You set a timer for three minutes, and three minutes every day you lean into a pleasurable experience. Mm-hmm. Could be, and I have chronic back pain. I've done it with with back pain, mm-hmm. and I've found that even in back pain, there's experiences that are mildly pleasurable mm-hmm. because it's the movement of sensation, and sensation can be pleasurable if you just let yourself lean into it a little bit. Yeah. But we don't have to get that radical. We could just say taking a warm shower. Mm-hmm. What you'll notice, I bet, if you try it, is even in a warm shower or even in a sexual experience, your mind will tend to want to just flip around and not be present yeah yeah um how can you like how can you be present in the middle of even a pleasurable experience and i think if you try it you'll realize oh wow this is harder than i thought Mm -hmm. and so what i've started to do is just really like lean into that yeah for three minutes a day and and what that does is you're you're actually developing a new muscle yeah there, I realize there's a lot of grumpy meditators, you know? Yes. Just grumpy people that are meditators and that are uptight and they're mm-hmm. anxious and, you know. Yeah. And so I've also changed, just for this, this has just been this past month, I've changed the labeling of my meditation practice. So I don't say I'm quote unquote going to meditate. I say I'm going, this is in my own mind, yeah. I say I'm going to do my vulnerability practice. Yeah. And so I go sit down and I try to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a weird idea. But try it sometime. So Shayla yeah. Catherine, who's a really wonderful meditation teacher, she's got some wonderful books she's out. She's a powerhouse. Yeah, she's a powerhouse. A young woman and just just profound uh, practitioner. She says of meditation, which I think is so right on, she says meditation is not about the accumulation of accomplishments, but the refinement of relinquishment. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by vulnerability practice. I mean, can you actually refine? Because relinquishing is a vulnerable act. Mm-hmm. It's letting, what we're talking about is letting go. Yeah. If this sounds super abstract, I just invite you to try it. And, and because it is abstract. So the, the journey is what, is, what does he mean by vulnerability? Try just sitting down and see if you can touch anything that's slightly vulnerable. Yeah. Just see if you can, you can feel that emotion of vulnerability and then tune into that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, the way that, um, again, this is like totally against the grain from the way that we think we just need to keep accumulating to get uh, happier and to experience, you know, and into the next whatever technology. I mean, this is like, cliche. it feels cliche and we all know it. And yet this is seemingly to be a way to really, in, to to touch into this thing that we're talking about is to just really like let drop it drop that yeah. drop let go you'll be fine without it and then let's see how fine you will be really if you continue down in that place of just trying to just be with yourself 
I know. My life is a giant cliche. It's like so <laughs> difficult sometimes. Because I just uh, got this new mic, right? And it's great. And I love it. And like then I'm looking at other mics while I got this one. Right, I'm right, like, totally. well, I'm look at all these and compare the mics and the, you know, and it's like, this is fine. <laughs> this is fine, Mike. I don't even have to go further with that. Yeah, if you think about it, I think I think a cliche <laughs> is a realization, is a truth we just haven't had a realization about yet. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, like, you know, like, here, let's take the worst cliche, like that bumper sticker, um, do random acts of kindness. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, it just makes me nauseous, right? Yeah. But then you can actually have a realization on how profound c- kindness is. Mm-hmm. It's so profound. It's, you know, I have this old woman that keeps coming to my classes, you know? Yeah. And she's always like, Will, when are you going to give us the real stuff? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, listen, I've been in this game long enough. Like, yeah. give me the heavy hitting stuff. Give me the you sexy know? stuff. That's yeah. Really. There. And she's just, and I'm like, I'm like, I gave you the heaviest thing that there is. <laughs> like, we're talking about kindness. She's like, I don't want the kindness stuff. Give me like some, give me some of the tantric stuff. Or, and she's, yeah. and she's great. And, and, and it's, but it's like, she's completely missing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, that is the heavy stuff. You just know? want to keep accumulating it. You want to keep yeah. getting more of that? Yeah. You want to hear it. Like the other one, don't worry, be happy. Yeah. I didn't even realize that was from, was Meher Baba, right? Oh, is so, that his thing? I think it's, I think, yeah. And so, you know, you hear this Bobby McFerrin song. Was Bobby McFerrin a Meher Baba? I don't disciple? know. That's a good question. We got to look we into that. We got to do a little uh, intel me, on we'll that We'll call one. him on the break. Yeah. And so, like, that song is kind of, like, silly, and we, we hear yeah, it now, yeah. but yeah. yet... If you look at don't worry, be happy. Yeah. Wow, dude. And touching it is joy, right? Yeah, like right, that, right. Can I actually do that? No, that is very difficult. Well, so here's the wisdom of Tibetan Buddhism is that um, that we that we've lost a little bit is there's a practice called lojong. When you really get into lojong, it's all super cliche. Mm. No, but you're not allowed to study lojong until you go through all of this training. Mm-hmm. So imagine you go through all of this super intense training. You do three-year retreats. You probably do three three-year retreats. So you do about nine or ten years of retreat, you know. And then you you have to go through logic, and you have to study all the tantras and everything. And then finally, your teacher was like, all right, now I'm going to teach you lojong. And you're like, okay, what's lojong? It's like, kindness. <laughs> <laughs> be kind you know but you've been so primed to it yeah when you hear that you hear it is not cliche you're like oh my god you're like oh yeah. that is exactly you're like oh that's the key like that is it but unfortunately we've we don't go through that training and we just get the bumper sticker yeah and we put it on our like npr next to our npr bumper sticker yes. you know as you get the kind of left yeah. wing thing of like oh yeah. yeah just be kind and that's wonderful and you know yeah and it's you know it's unfortunate because it actually is turns out that is the heavy stuff that's it right there that my my older friend really has been waiting for her whole life and I you know yeah. I don't know if she'll catch it because she's wanting it to be sexier yeah and it's and it's profoundly sexy when it becomes when it moves out of clicheville yeah yeah it's interesting um so like being able to be kind to everyone okay sounds. It, you say it's a heavy stuff. It sounds really powerful. And, and so I'm wondering, like, how do you do that if you really still feel like there's a divide between you and me or us and them? Right. And and, and it's like, that sounds so nice. Um, 
for somebody who's not, you know, is dealing with poverty or dealing with violence or dealing with war. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's and it sounds yeah, and totally. And I think Martin Luther King Jr. says something extremely powerful in this in reference to this. He says, "Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic." Mm-hmm. Let me say that again, because it's yeah. just, it's so heavy hitting. He says, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. So what the cliche is, is that we're, it feels sentimental and anemic. It's like, oh, and, and I think what he's pointing to is this deep, deep truth. In, in Buddhism, it's called uh, the two truths. But it's, oh, you need both. You need actually to be empowered. You need a certain kind of power of uh, uh, presence and and the love right so the love is not removed from the power and the power is not removed from the love so oftentimes what we see is people like just talking about love and stuff like that and they, they're not tuned into what that means in terms of being powered and empowered so every now and then i'll speak i have a wonderful opportunity of speaking with activists and um it's really about how to balance these two things how to not lose sight of the of the bigger picture that we're just on the, we're just earthlings together mm-hmm. and within that we have to be clear about what's right and wrong let me give you another example the tibetans say well like oh this is also nice about being nonviolent and not hurting people and being kind but what about if somebody's coming at you with a knife mm-hmm. like what are you supposed to you just like supposed to love them and like you know and that's bs obviously mm-hmm. right so they say but what happens is you approach um that person as if they were your own mother who's like out of her mind in a psychotic episode coming at you with a knife Mm -hmm. you're going to do everything to a protect yourself and to protect them but you're not going to do it in a way where you have hatred towards them Mm And so can you be powerful in the world? Can you disarm people? Can you, you know, be a powerful presence? I mean, you're not going to just, you know, and I think that's, it's useful to think about it in those ways. Mm-hmm. Of We're talking about of, of having this balance, of, of being active, of being, of, of fighting against wrong and fighting against people that are abusing power and, you know. But not not doing that at the delusion of putting people out of your heart, mm-hmm. because that is a delusion. Because on another level, we are all earthlings here together. Yeah. Um, and can we do that? You know, can you do that um, yeah. in a way that's loving? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's nice. Well said. Well put. <sighs> hmm. Well, I know time wise here where we're at. Um, so I'll round out with these these two questions that <laughs> divergent from where we just were. And beautiful, so on a new beautiful, uh, totally other topic. Totally other topic. And just but it, but in a way that, you know, will just help kind of taper us out back into the uh, the Disney world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this yeah, is yeah. important. Yeah, let's go get back, back to Disney. Let's go back in. And that is the, the two sides, you know? Yeah. You got to be yeah. able to function in Disney world. Yes. Um, so a quick point on that before. <laughs> <laughs> who's the, who's the, who wrote that book that, uh, the, about Theos Bernard? Oh, um, Doug, uh, Doug Vinhoff. Doug Vinhoff. Doug Vinhoff read this great book. What's it called? Do you remember? White Llama. White Llama. Oh, it's such a great story. True story about this guy. But first Westerner to go be let into Tibet. Tibet. Yeah. 
It's a crazy yeah. story. I mean, yeah. if you've never read it, you got to read this book. It's amazing. But anyway, at one point, um, somebody says, and he's a really intense yogi. Yeah. He's like the ultimate yogi, you yeah. know? And, um, and he's in India, and he gets invited to this cocktail party, and somebody says, every true yogi needs to always pack a tuxedo. <laughs> And yes. I love that because that's really that's a that's another version of a yogi. A yogi yeah. is somebody that can that can go into any world and blend in. Yeah, that is that is beautiful. If you can adapt to your surroundings immediately with any kind of person on this planet. Yeah, that to me that sounds pretty spectacular and that's what we're talking about with being a real yogi being yeah. a real spiritual practitioner can yeah. do you have the tux yeah yeah do you can you unfold the tux do you you know yes. you, you know and, and i love that <laughs> so so anyway we got to be able to jump back into disneyland yeah and 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 navigate it with love and power i like that i like that um so this is a natural question from that place is what is your what was your favorite toy growing up oh well, I don't know if it was my favorite toy, but I'll tell you the toy that had the biggest impact on me was um, I got a Spock doll. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it was like the first toy I remember like freaking out over. Wow. I was probably three or four. And were you watching Star Trek a lot? No, then? no. I, just... I don't think I even knew what Star Trek was. <laughs> but I, it, was just, it was just the first memory of like, oh. Yeah. But my favorite toy was by and far a, a huge chest of wood blocks I had. Nice. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. It's just endless, endless. Yeah. And I love building. I try. I love building huge things. Yeah. So I'd spend all day in my room building. Oh man. Yeah. That's great. Um, that's so good. The other one is what is your favorite movie? Oh gosh, this is so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a favorite movie from when I was in high school. Yeah. And then I have a favorite movie, kind of more of as an adult. I think I might know the high school one. <laughs> what is it? Countryman. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not even my favorite movie. It's a movie I saw the most. I I watched that after you talked about it a while, <laughs> and I just for people because I bet a lot of people haven't seen Countryman. No, no. It's it's a wild. It's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, no, I liked it, and it yeah. was you know it was like a stoner movie, but it was about kind of what we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, it was about somebody a solitary who lives on the edge of the community. Yes. Yeah. And it was mystical and it was magical yeah. and it was I so I just really related with that yeah. somehow with Countryman. Yeah. Um but more I really, really love Jim Jarmusch as a filmmaker. Yeah. And his film Dead Man, I think is it, it's the only movie in my entire life where I watched the entire movie and the minute it ended, I this was dates me, but I rewound it because mm -hmm. it was on the videotape. Yes. And I watched it again. Yeah. Right there. Wow. I was like, what? And yeah. it was a beautiful movie. Yeah. Um, but but now, you know, and those were like, those were younger years. But, yeah. Um, but that's what the first things that came to mind. But now there's so many movies that I find so beautiful out there. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you if they want to see where you're teaching? Or I know you're doing a lot online right now. And is there yeah. anything... Yeah, you can find me at my website. Pretty much I, I try to post everything that's coming up. And then I also have links to videos and to interviews and things on there. And that's willduncan.org. And I'll put it in the show notes. And then um, I also started a little YouTube channel just for kind of life on the farm and every now and then throwing in some, some Dharma ideas or some ideas from the spiritual traditions of the East and the West. And that's just YouTube backslash Will Duncan. 
Um, yeah, and I think that's you can find links to anything from there. Great. Yeah, and I'll put all that in there. Thanks, Brad, for the super fun. Thanks, buddy. See you soon. Ah, it's a wonderful life. What a wonderful time that was. Mm. G. Willikers. I had such a really great conversation there with Will. And as I said, you know, in the, in the, if I did say in the beginning, um, you know, it was like joking with Will before we started how, why don't you just ask yourself some questions? <laughs> He's so great at just going into these alleyways and avenues and trajectories and bifurcations. And it makes a lot easier. Makes my role as um, the friend interviewer a lot easier. So as I said, that was just scratching the surface. And uh, we even went on to do a little bonus round. And that episode should be coming out soon. It'll actually first appear on my Patreon, which I'll also throw on in the show notes. Wink, wink, hint, hint. And um, yeah, I'm just so happy to spend time with Will. I always feel better when I'm around Will. And I can say that really for, for all my friends, you know, um, they don't want to play favorites or anything, but you know how it feels when you're with your friends and your loved ones, you just feel better. I mean, I do, I feel that way. I feel more, uh, connected and uplifted when I'm with people that I care about and even strangers, you know, just strangers who you are, uh, around and, you know, you can find connection and common ground. I think that's a wonderful gift to, um, to share with other people, to find that common ground and to connect. And, uh, you know, it is something that, you know, uh, I haven't talked a lot about this, but in the past year, you know, how do we connect? How do we find these ways of connecting with others and how important that is as we start to do that more, start to go back in and have this, this social engagement again and connectedness and maybe just like see what that feels like see what it feels like when that happens and it might feel a little awkward at first it might be kind of weird just because you know it's been a weird year but there's uh there's something i've noticed even just seeing some people more recently is i notice like how extra good it feels you know how how that nice sense of kind of mutual reciprocity and uh engagement that we experience when we're with another human being, you know, how you can just play off of, uh, play off of their, their own nervous system. You know, it feels, it feels really good. I think that's great. And I think that's, um, one of the best gifts that we as humans can give one another is if you can walk into a room and just feel good <laughs> and experience joy in your own heart, in your own body, if you can just let that exude and radiate out to others, that's a, that's a really great way of, uh, of being in service to the human race. So it's, it's something just for me as a reminder to, to remember, Hey, Hey, I, uh, I can do that. You know, it's something I, I have the power to do is to really just, uh, 
just feel good, you know, try to feel good, find ways that I feel good and, and find ways that I can just, um, let that, you know, be contagious to, uh, to others. That's, it might be a, a bit of a, uh, loaded word or charged word, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, to be, uh, contagious <laughs> for, uh, to others, to others, to, you know, infect them with your joy. Okay. I think that gets the point across. <laughs> Any hoot. Um, I look forward to, uh, hearing from you. If you ever want to drop me a line, please do. On uh, my website, send me a message if you'd like. And uh, I am signing off here. Be well, my friends. Every day.